Dr. Luis Sandoval is accomplished in the fields of mental health and spiritual warfare, a medical doctor, board certified in neurology, psychiatry, and family medicine. He is also a psychiatrist for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Orange, Ministry of Healing and Deliverance. Now, Dr. Luis Sandoval. All right, folks, welcome to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You are listening to the Dr. Luis Sandoval Show. As always, I am your host, Dr. Luis Sandoval, and it is a pleasure to be here with you, listening to our Catholic radio, sharing our Catholic faith. Here at the clinic, we talk about our mental health, our spiritual health, and our physical health, of course. Today's show is a little bit interesting. Um, You know, the title, I Murdered My Brother and I Became Possessed. Um, Does that really happen? Well, I've got an interesting story to share with you about a man I was treating uh, who shared that story himself. But, And I thought it was interesting, you know, to say that that's what it came down to. He wasn't sure why he was possessed or what was going on in his life or what brought it about. But that's really what happened. And uh, can somebody be liberated from that? Absolutely. But before we get started here at the top of the noon hour, if we're going to talk about such intense things on our show, let's go ahead and start with some good prayers with the Angelus and the prayer to St. Michael. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl around the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, folks, why could this be? You know, we talk about a lot of different things, and, you know, when you look on TV, and you look at Hollywood, and you look at all these different images of what possession is and what happens with possession, usually we start to see that um, the portrayal is you were doing something very, very directly occult. You were doing something very, very directly related to uh, worshiping the devil or uh, bringing about evil spirits. You know, a lot of times we say, oh yeah, they were playing with the tarot cards and all of a sudden they got possessed because they were calling upon evil. Uh, or somebody was playing with a Ouija board. And of course, you know, they were tapping into the nether world. And because of that, naturally they opened doors to darkness and, you know, gosh, I never want to do that. I never want to open any doors to darkness. I never, I want to make sure that that's just not part of uh, my life. And so I'm going to go pray and I'm going to go do, do these things. And I'm going to be really shocked and appalled every time something like that comes up because I want that completely away from me. And I'm going to teach my family never to be near anything that looks like it's a cult. And of course, those are some very direct ways, direct entry ways, direct ways that we open portals into the dark side. But 
the question now is, what about the everyday things we do? What about the sins that we carry with ourselves? What about those things that we're not willing to let go of that we have every day, that we harbor every day? And guess what? Little by little, they start to accumulate. It's interesting because uh, a lot of times people don't realize and they think, well, possession happens overnight. You know, something something that goes as, as deep and dark as, as a demonic possession, demonic obsessions, influences, that happens overnight. You know how I know? Because I saw it in the movies, right? Somebody was doing something and in that moment, boy, that demon entered them and, and they were possessed and they needed to call a priest right away and to, to remove all of this. Is that really how it happens in life? What we have to realize is in order to get to the level of some kind of intense possession, intense influence of the darkness in our lives, usually we've been giving permission uh, throughout time. It, it's not just a one-time thing. Usually it's been accumulating. We've accepted certain things in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, um, little by little. And we say, you know what, that's okay because I've made it okay. And what I mean by certain things, it can be simple little sins like, you know, I really don't like this person and I'm not going to try to find anything good about them. And the more I'm around them, oh, the more they really do weigh on me. Man, they are so annoying. They, I don't know. You know what? I'm just going to step away. This is a person I work with or something. You know, it could be somebody we see uh, when we go to the store, whatever the situation is. We start not liking this person and we don't do anything to change that. We don't look for the good in that person. We just kind of continue holding on to that. And we say, I don't like that. In fact, you know what? I'm just going to start to ignore them. I'm going to start to cut them off. I'm going to start to pretend they're not even there. If they do say something to me, I'm just going to be very short with them and move on because boy, there's something about them I just don't like. And that's just how it goes. You know, that that's how it's going to be whenever I go to work. If they need help, I'm definitely not going to help them. Why would I do that? Gosh, they're, they're so annoying. You know, I'm just going to go home and I'm going to be happy knowing that I'm a good person. I don't annoy other people or so we think, but I don't annoy other people. I, I, I feel that I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to go pray my rosary. And boy, I just know that I don't like this person. And that could continue to grow. I mean, it could stay stagnant like that. And that's not good. If it stays stagnant over time, it starts to be like a little festering wounds. But as we know, festering wounds can get worse and worse. So it can continue to grow to the point where not only do we not like the person or do we find that person off-putting, uh, we might even go out of our way to make sure that they don't get promoted or that other people kind of see how we feel about them, you know, and we do it in a way where we're like, hey, have you ever noticed anything about that person? Do that, you know, I just find them a little challenging. Do you, do we agree here? Do we, do we see eye to eye on this? And the other person might say, yeah, I do too. Well, okay. That confirms what I was thinking. That's for sure. Because I was already looking for that answer and I'm holding on to this. And every time I see this person, I get more either angry or irritated, or I find them even more distasteful. This can happen. It's very common. It's human nature. The question is, what is the consequence to our soul? What's the, the consequence to ourselves in this situation? What am I doing? Well, little by little, folks, if we do that, we're allowing the door of irritability, hatred, whatever you want to call it, to be open and maybe to open other doors. And little by little, we're allowing something to build and build and build and build, and we don't even recognize it. It's kind of like the story of the uh, frog that's in a boiling pot, you know, turn on the heat really nice and low, and it just keeps getting hotter little by little, but the frog doesn't realize that it's being cooked because the temperature is rising in a very calm, cool fashion, but it's looking pretty dangerous. You're going to die here. Well, 
A lot of times that can happen for us as well. We're allowing this evil to be in our hearts. We're allowing this hatred to be in our hearts, something that goes against our commandments, something that goes against uh, the fifth commandment, in fact. And Dr. Sam, what do you mean that goes against the fifth commandment? Fifth commandment is that shall not kill. I'm not killing this person. Well, we're going to have to ask ourselves, how do we define what it means to kill? Because if we go back to the definition of dying and strictly the physical death, then we are no better than that serpent in the book of Genesis. If we go off of, well, you know, dying means a physical death and I'm not going to die. I'm not dying, right? I can, I can eat at the apple and not die. I'll just have knowledge of good and evil. Well, I opened the door to knowledge of evil, which wasn't there, which means that I've opened the door to evil being around. If I do that, if I'm doing something that might kill my soul, and I don't even think about it. I don't think about it twice because it's just happening in the background. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting um, thing to consider, but let's see if we're any different in our influence than what it said in the book of Genesis. Now I'm going to read from Genesis chapter three. Um, it's called, it's the fall of man. And this is what it says. Now the serpent was mo- was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, we can tra- translate this into, did God really say you have to like everybody? Did God really, isn't it human to not like people? Isn't, isn't it okay? I mean, we're, we can't make friends with anybody. What do we call that when we're out in public? Oh, there's just a personality difference here. This is a question of personality issues. Well, is that what we're called to as Catholics is what we have to ask ourselves. So remember, the devil's already introducing questions questioning what God had said. Did God really say that? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Did Jesus really say you got to love your enemies? Hmm? Let's think about it. What does the woman say? She says to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. What does Jesus tell us? Turn the other cheek. Well, he did say, turn the other cheek. Uh, Jesus said, love your enemies. Um, he said, love your neighbor as, as you love yourself. So he, he is putting all these things in play. Well, what's the devil going to say? I mean, we, we, we come back with, well, this is what Jesus did say. Well, the devil's going to say, well, you're certainly not going to die. So Jesus is telling us, if I do something wrong, I'm gonna, I, I've, I've murdered my brother. We're going to get to those verses in, in the Gospels. Um, but what's the devil going to tell us? He's going to say, you will not certainly die the serpent sent to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the difference? Well, no, you're certainly not going to, you're not killing anybody. They're not going to die. What's going to happen is your eyes will be open to realize that people aren't perfect and that you don't have to accept imperfection because didn't Jesus also tell us to be perfect? And boy, if they're not perfect, why would I accept them? They're not following the way of Jesus. Isn't that what happens? Isn't that the way it is brought about? Isn't that what the serpent tells us to do? It tells us to uh, challenge that which God tells us, right? To see it from a different way. Well, if I see it from a different way, I'm listening. What am I listening to? I'm leaving the path of Christ and I'm opening up the doorways to the dark side. So this is where we really got to ask ourselves. When we come back from the break, I know the break's coming up in a, in a little while here. When we come back from the break, I'm going to share the story of this patient I saw and what was going on with him and how he became influenced by the dark side and how we can avoid those pitfalls in our very lives. More when we come back from the break. 
right, well, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You are listening to the Dr. Louis Sandoval Show. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. Today, we are talking about an interesting topic. And the question is, what does it really mean to murder somebody? You know, I had a patient who uh, was really influenced by um, some challenging, challenging things going on in his life. He found that things just were not going well. Things didn't make sense. He was uh, probably mid, uh, well, late 30s. He was in his late 30s. And when he came to me, it was because he just didn't know what was going on. He didn't know what was going on. Uh, he, to give you a little bit of a background, he was married. He had some kids. Um, his wife was fine. His kids were fine. They were doing well in school. There was nothing extraordinary uh, going on in his life other than for himself. He could not think straight. He could not uh, see things clearly is what he would say. He was at work, but it was like he wasn't there. He felt like his mind was being controlled. He said that he wanted to do something. He wanted to go ahead and get on the computer, do his computer work or whatever it was that he needed to do at work. And somehow his mind could just not go to this. He could not focus. He said that he could, he'd get home and he'd try to start a task and he couldn't do anything um, because he'd start the task, but he would do it halfway. It didn't make sense to him. He said, it's like, it's right there in front of me. I want to get this done, but somehow there's a disconnect between my brain and my body. I try to get my hands to move and they will, but I just feel like I can't control them. Like I can't control my body anymore. This is completely strange. And so we needed to evaluate a few different things. If anybody's ever feeling this way, I don't want you to think, oh my goodness, this is it. I must be uh, influenced by the dark side. I, mu I must be influenced by a demon or something in my life. No, let's review this because obviously if you're coming to me in the clinic, I got to evaluate a few things. So first, as always, we start with the physical. We start with the body. We start to see, well, what's going on with your body? Are you depleted of any vitamins? A lot of times if you have a vitamin B12 deficiency, this could be an issue. If you have a vitamin C deficiency, this could be an issue. If you have anything in terms of your, your body's deficiencies and in, in terms of the vitamins, the electrolytes and things of that nature, you might not think clearly. I've had patients who have been low in their sodium, low in their electrolytes, and they can't think clearly. In fact, one of the symptoms of being off in your electrolytes is that you can develop psychotic type symptoms. Um, and you might see things, hear things act differently than you normally would. So you do the lab work and he looked pretty good. Okay. Physically looking okay. Uh, it was a little bit out of shape, but no big deal. Nothing that would have influenced him in the way that he was experiencing. Because remember he was experiencing what he was experiencing was really, he had no control over his body at this point. It was very, very challenging. So now let's get things straight though. Let me clear a few things up. He wasn't saying that his body was moving on its own. He wasn't saying that he was speaking in tongues. He wasn't saying anything along those lines. The only thing that he was experiencing is he couldn't move forward. He was, he just wasn't able to, it's kind of like he was stuck in a tar pit or like he was stuck in a vat of wet cement and, and he had to get through. It's kind of like trying to sprint in a swimming pool. He just could not move in that direction. And sometimes it was hard to even start that move. Okay. Well, physically, everything's looking pretty good. Thyroid was looking okay. No problems in the, in, in the urinary tract. No, no obvious signs of infection, no meningitis, nothing that would physically cause these symptoms. So that was pretty interesting. Okay. So then we move forward and we say, physically, you're looking pretty good. Let's look at your mental health. What could possibly cause this? There's a few issues in mental health that can cause this. And we need to be aware of these issues. So 
right away, the first thing we're going to look at a psychiatrist, is there any anxiety or depression in going on uh, in, in, your, in your mind, shall we say? In your life, of course, as human beings, anxiety, boy, well, that's going to be across the board. Everybody feels anxious every now and then. That's a normal human emotion. But is it getting to the point where it's clinically significant, where it's impairing you for moving forward? This is possible. People can have an anxiety that is impairing them from moving forward, meaning that they are so anxious that they can't even leave the house because they're so worried that something's going to happen, that they can't get in a car because there will be a car accident. They don't want to take a trip anywhere. God forbid they take a vacation because if they get on that plane, all of a sudden, what's going to happen? The plane's going to crash, right? In their mind, um, or they're not going to get on a boat because the boat's going to sink. When somebody has a lot of anxiety, generalized anxiety, nothing is good and everything's a source of stress. And good luck trying to convince them otherwise. It takes a lot for somebody who's experiencing that to move forward. So sometimes we can see that people with generalized anxiety or very severe anxiety or specific phobias or things along those lines can have what we call analysis paralysis. They think about it too much. They're analyzing, 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 and they paralyze themselves. I don't know if anybody's ever experienced this, say that you were studying for a test for school. And of course, everybody's going to get anxious. That's normal. That's a normal anxiety. It's not a clinical anxiety. I'm anxious before taking this test. Okay. So what are we going to do about that? Well, we're going to study. But you know what? This stuff's not making sense. The more I read it, it doesn't make sense at all. I'm getting more and more anxious. And as I get more and more anxious, what's happening? I can think even less. And it can get to the point where the anxiety is no longer productive. Because initially, some of the anxiety can be productive. If there's a fire in the room, I hope I get anxious and, and walk away. If I see a car coming my way, I hope I jump out of the street or out of the way of the car, wherever the car is, because that anxiety is productive. But we can get to a point where the anxiety is so intense, I can't even think now. In fact, I need to study for this test, but I'm just too, I'm not even going to look at it. I'm going to put it away. And the night before the test, I'm really going to be anxious. That anxiety is going to go up. You know, that's, that's, those are normal things. That's a, that's a good anxiety to have, except for when I, it, it paralyzes me like that. So the good anxiety is getting out of the car. The bad anxiety is when we get over that hump and there's, we're, I'm so anxious, I can't even look at the material for the test. That can happen. That can paralyze us. Is that what was happening to this man? Not really. His anxiety wasn't anything other than the fact that he couldn't get things done. And then he felt anxiety. Then he felt like, gosh, I'm anxious because I can't get things done, but I'm not anxious wanting to get them done. I want to get them done. I want to move forward. I just can't move forward. There's this invisible block that I cannot explain. Okay, well, let's look at depression. In depression, we have something called psychomotor retardation. And what that means is the brain, the psycho part, the psychic part of ourselves and the motor part, the body part, they are not in tune. They are not in line. So if somebody does suffer clinical depression, and I don't just mean that you're sad, but we can use that, ex that uh, example as well. Uh, but if somebody is suffering clinical depression, their body's just not moving. Their mind knows what they want to do, but their body's not moving with this. It's just not happening. I can sit on the couch all day long and I want to go get up and go to work, but my body's not responding. Or I just need to get up and go do a few, run a few errands, go take care of a few chores. My body's not responding. There's a a clinical depression going on there. It's just not happening. Now, can this happen to people when they're feeling sad? Absolutely. Let's look at an example. Say that you are mourning the death of a loved one. And if you're mourning the, the death of a loved one, well, how many times do we feel like doing anything? Somebody just passed away. I'm in the middle of grief. I'm grieving. I'm at home. I can't think much. I can't get anything done. In fact, people will tell you, you know what? Take a few days off of work and do something because obviously you're not going to be productive. That's to be expected. Imagine trying to go do some work or work, you know, to your full potential when that, when this occurred, when the death of somebody very close to us 
to us occurs, it's not going to be easy. I'm not going to be able to get my test done. It's not going to make sense. And we know that. We know that. All of a sudden, I'm not able to move forward. I'm not able to be productive. I'm not thinking clearly. And I might just sit there in a vegetative type state where I don't want to move. That's normal. But when there's nothing preventing us from doing that or no inciting event, nothing happened that just comes on all of a sudden, we can't move forward. I can't get to taking care of the tasks that I normally take care of done. That can be an issue. And all of a sudden we have a clinical depression. So for this patient who is telling me, I can't get things done. I was thinking, wow, this sounds a lot like a depression. I think you might be going through a depression. And he said, you know, I'll trust you, doc. I guess uh, let's try it out. Okay. Maybe, maybe I'm depressed. Okay. So that was one thing that we were considering fully. The anxiety component wasn't there, but um, the, the depression component was there. The other thing we need to consider is, are you having any kind of attention deficit disorder? Can't focus, can't get things done. I get something started. I can't finish it. I move on to the next task and the next task, and I, I just can't get them done. So that's something else to consider. we got to ask ourselves, well, is there something blocking um, this person from doing that? And attention deficit disorder could as very well do that. Now, in his particular case, what I thought was, I think you're going through a depression. I think you're going through a depression and we need to address this issue. So we started prescribing a medication. Now this medication would have taken care of depression. It would have taken care of anxiety. Um, didn't really work. <clears throat> and we tried a different one. Didn't really work. And we gave it its full course. You know, we gave it a couple months for each of these medications to see if there was even any kind of an effect. The medications were good. He wasn't experiencing, uh, from one of them, he had a, a few side effects, some GI issues. His stomach it kind of upset his stomach. From the other one, it didn't. Um, we tried actually three or four medications and nothing seemed to even move in a particularly positive direction where one would say, yeah, you know, gosh, okay, something, something's working here. And there was really no change. He's, he remained the same. There was, there was no change in his affect, his attitude. And so we started talking about a few other things, ADHD. The more that we looked at that as, a t as far as attention deficit disorder, um, it wasn't, it wasn't anything really along those lines. It was just really, he just felt this block, this internal block. And what really made me, uh, think about, <clears throat> we think we need to really start to consider the spiritual aspect of your life here is that he said, you know, after trying all these medications, doc, and doing all this, it's, I, I've come, you know, I've, I've stopped and I, I've asked myself, what's happening here? What's going on? And I asked him, yeah, what did you come up with? Because obviously, um, no, we're not in his shoes. I'm listening to his story. It could be a few different things. And he said, when I want to do this, it's like, there's a block in my heart. Like as I'm trying to get through my day, it's like my heart is blocked. I don't feel it so much in my head. I don't feel it so much in my body, but I feel it in my heart. And thought that's interesting. We explored that a little bit more. I said, tell me more about that. And he said, you know, it's kind of like when, when you have a player in, in a professional sport and he said, you know, some players they're, they're going to play and they're, they're doing it for the money. You know, they're doing it for the money. It's business. They go in there, it's a job and they're going to play for the, the highest, uh, bidding team. So whoever gives them the more money, that's who they're going to play for. He said, but there's other players who come on the field and you see them running around and you see them playing their, their, their sport and you realize that they really enjoy it. Their heart is in it. They got their heart in it. All of a sudden they really, really enjoying it. And you can tell, man, this guy, he's, he's a joy to watch play because no matter which team he plays with, he enjoys it so much that he's having fun. The crowd is having fun with him and it makes the, the gameplay that much more enjoy, enjoyable. He said, you know, that's, that guy's playing with heart. He said, I don't think I'm living with my heart right now. I think this block comes from, 
I feel like everything is just kind of a chore, a business, if you will. I have to do it. There are a lot of things that I just have to do. And it's just, I feel this block in my heart. Well, we had to start to explore that. And I said, that's interesting because obviously I'm trying to treat your mind. Your body was fine. Try and treat your mind. But now you're talking about your heart. And this is where I started thinking, now you're talking a little bit more about your soul. What's going on in your life? What's going on in your spiritual life? What's going on in terms of, um, is there anything heavy, burdensome, things along these lines? And he started to share with me a few things. You know, we started to explore each individual relationship that he felt was a close relationship in his life. He wouldn't, wasn't having any issues with anybody at work, uh, per se. He was well-liked at work. So with his wife, he was fine. You know, he said it was status quo. He said marriage may be boring sometimes is what he described it as. You know, he, he said it doesn't always have that excitement, but he had a couple kids. And, you know, with the kids, he said it's hard to balance, you know, the attention from my wife, attention to my kids and going back and forth. And I thought, oh, that's pretty normal. That's, that's pretty normal in the marriages. Any risk of divorce or anything like that? He said, no, not at all. They would never even consider it. Folks, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You are listening to the Dr. Louis Sandoval Show. As always, it is a pleasure to be here with you today. We're having an interesting conversation today regarding what does it mean to murder and what are the consequences of murdering somebody? You know, we talk about different things in terms of what it means to kill, what it means to murder. Um, <clears throat> obviously, the most obvious one is you take somebody's physical life. Um, but I think a much more powerful meaning to the word murder is when you kill somebody's spirit, when we kill them spiritually or, you know, and we, well, actually, before we get to the, or we can think about that in terms of putting somebody down, making somebody feel less than getting rid of somebody's dignity. We can say that we kill them internally. And then there's another way to, shall we say, kill somebody or murder them. Uh, and that would be to just cut them off, to just not speak to them anymore, to close all the doors of communication to them. And then that's it. You know, we don't, we don't talk to them. We don't speak to them and, and they're dead to us and we are dead to them. Technically speaking, there's all different kinds of death. Why is this important? Well, we're talking about a, a gentleman who I was helping out. Um, interesting case where he felt that, you know, he couldn't move forward in his life. There was something wrong uh, going on. He couldn't accomplish some of the most basic things to fulfill his life. He was trying to do work. He was trying to get things done and, you know, at work he would eventually get things done, but he wasn't productive. At home, he said everything was in slow motion. We evaluated and questioned, does he have anxiety? Does he have depression? Is there something physically wrong with him? And there was nothing physically wrong with him. And as we were saying before the break, he said that there was a problem. He felt a blockage in his heart. He said his heart wasn't in it. His heart wasn't, and by it, he meant life. His heart wasn't in life. There was something going on. We went through his family members and, you know, everything was looking okay. He was getting along with his wife. He was fine with his, with his kids. Uh, there didn't really seem to be anything going on. The only thing he did say was that there was a rift between him and his brother and that this has been going on for a while and that he knew he was right. And his brother was, you know, in the wrong, but they hadn't spoken for some time. They hadn't spoken in about two, three years. And he said, that was really the only thing, you know, not, nothing that he thought about on the daily basis, but it was something that was just kind of hanging out there, kind of burdening him a little bit. 
And we started with that. And I said, well, where, you know, where do you feel that burden? Do you feel it in your shoulders? Do you feel it in your head? He goes, no, obviously, you know, it's a, we, we came down to the obvious, which we don't think about sometimes, but for him, it was in his heart. You know, he said, no, I kind of feel that in my heart. And I said, well, why don't we explore that? Because spiritually, it sounds like you're carrying a spiritual burden and that might be something that is keeping you from moving forward. What's going on? And so he said, you know, I feel a darkness. I feel a darkness in my heart. It's almost as if a person is there, um, kind of in a way telling me to hold on to this, to that, that I was, that I shouldn't reach out to my brother. It's going to be too hard. And that if I do reach out to him, what's the point? We're just going to get into an argument and that I'm right anyway. Um, he said, I feel like a, like almost like a presence, if you will, uh, something, something, uh, a heavy weight, um, but really like, like there's somebody there, like, like something's holding on to something kind of for me, you know, like I don't even have to hold on to it at this point. Something's holding on to this, to this, uh, rift, to the anger, to the, to whatever it is that we're arguing about. I don't remember the specifics of the argument <clears throat> with something about, you know, difference of opinion on, on something. They started to argue about it. Each of them wanted to be right. Uh, neither of them wanted to, to relinquish any, um, acceptance of the other person's point of view. And he said, you know, he's just not seeing it my way and I'm not seeing it his way. And uh, the argument was overall, I would say pretty insignificant. It wasn't anything that anybody would say, wow, of course you guys are arguing about that. It seemed pretty insignificant from the outside, but obviously on the inside, it was something that was tearing them apart. And it was something that was weighing heavy on this man's heart. What I found interesting is he said, I kind of feel the presence of somebody there holding on to this for me, kind of helping me uh, hold this anger, kind of helping me, uh, you know, move forward, if you will, even though obviously the situation was that he couldn't really move forward in life, but to kind of move forward with this, to kind of continue to journey with this anger. I thought that's kind of an interesting descriptor. You know, I didn't egg him on to to describe that or, or mention that to him. He just kind of, as he was doing an introspection, as he was looking into his heart, just kind of very honest saying, you know, it's like it's there and, and, and there's a person. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, <clears throat> obviously when somebody is fully possessed or has something going on, you know, we see this in deliverance, obviously some, there's a different presence there. There's a person there and not a, not a good person who we want to say, uh, the, the demonic or an angel is a person as a person of an angel. Um, the, the fallen angel still there and, and has a certain type of, a uh, personhood. So we say, um, you know, personified evil, right. Is, is a demon or, or a fallen angel. That's personified evil. There's, there's a personhood to that. Um, I thought that's interesting. And it made me think a little bit about the Bible readings. Let's read a little bit about murder in the Bible and what Jesus has to say about it. This is Matthew. Actually, we're going to start, I was going to start with Matthew chapter five, but let's start with uh, um, just before Matthew chapter five. Let's start Matthew, well, after chapter five, but there's an interesting reading. Let's start with Matthew chapter 18. Um, And in Matthew chapter 18, it starts with verse 15. And this is what it says. I'm going to read it straight from the Bible. It says, fraternal correction. If your brother should commit some wrong against you, Go and point out his fault, but keep it between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. If he does not listen, summon another, so that every case may stand on the word of two or three witnesses. If he ignores them, refer it to the church. If he ignores even the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. I assure you, whatever you declare bound on earth shall be held bound in heaven, and whatever you declare loose on earth shall be held loose in heaven." Now, I think at this point, this gentleman was, um, you know, at the point where he, where Jesus said, if he ignores even the church, well, here's the thing though. It didn't get to the point where they're ignoring the church. He didn't, he didn't get to that point. 
He just got to the point where there's something wrong against you. Go and point out his fault, but keep it between the two of you. If he listens to you, you'll win your brother over. If he does not listen, summon another. So he didn't get to that point. He didn't get to the point of summon another so that every case may stand on the word of two or three witnesses. This is just a battle between him and his brother. He didn't take it beyond anything, which tells me that, you know, sometimes the arguments we have, shall we say, are petty. I don't want to belittle anybody's arguments or anybody's frustrations or what they're feeling, but sometimes they're petty in the eyes of God, shall we say. To us, it's very important. But to him, it was just one of these things that, gosh, he says one thing, I say another thing. And based on that, I think I'm going to hold on to that. We're going to, we're just not going to talk. It didn't get to the point where it was an issue with the church or anything along those lines. So this is an interesting reading because where Jesus tells us, if your brother ignores the church, then you treat him like you would a Gentile or a tax collector. I think that's pretty interesting. How do you treat a Gentile or a tax collector? They're there. You acknowledge their existence. Um, you have to deal with them on a individual basis, but you're not always friendly with them. There's there's a rift, right? There, you, you, there's still a relationship, but it's not a friendly relationship. The last part, I assure you, whatever you declare bound on earth shall be held bound in heaven, and whatever you declare loose on earth shall be held loose in heaven. I think that that's very powerful. Because then I want to look at this next one. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. I'm going to read verse 21 to 26. And it says, against anger, you have heard the commandment imposed on your forefathers. You shall not commit murder. Every murderer shall be liable to judgment. What I say to you is, everyone who grows angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Any man who uses abusive language towards his brother shall be answerable to the Sanhedrin, and if he holds him in contempt, he risks the fires of Gehenna. If you bring your gift to the altar and there recall that your brother has anything against you, leave your gift at the altar, go first to be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Lose no time, settle with your opponent while on your way to court with him. Otherwise, your opponent may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to the guard, who will throw you into prison. I warn you, you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. I think that this speaks very true for this gentleman. Um, This whole passage speaks very true because this is where it comes down to. I mean, it's very simple. It's very, it's very simple, but very powerful in the spiritual world and in our everyday lives. We, you know, we hold on to these things. We think I'm justified in my anger. I hold on to it and it's okay because other people might understand because other people might say, of course, you're angry about that. The question is, what do we do with that anger? We just hold on to it and we're going to hold on to it. To what end? At what point do we let it go? What does, what good is it doing us? You know, look, look at this. and Let let me think about, let me let you break down what I thought about the the case for this gentleman. Says, what I say to you is everyone who grows angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Any man who uses abusive language towards his brother shall be answerable to the Sanhedrin. If he holds him in contempt, he risks the fires of Gehenna. So already this is what Christ is telling us. I'm angry with my brother, liable to judgment. And if I hold him in contempt, I risk the fires of Gehenna. The doors of hell are, are open and I'm risking going through those doors. That's what's going on here. Little by little, this little argument turned into something pretty heavy. It turned into something where all of a sudden those doors are opening little by little. The risk becomes greater as time goes on. And then at the very end, this is what Christ says. If you don't take care of this before you get to the court, he says, lose no time. Settle with your opponent while on your way to the court with him. Well, folks, we're all on our way to court. You know, on that, on our, on our last day here on earth, I'm going to be presented to a courtroom and that I'm going to be judged. 
and I'm going to be asked, what did I do? So lose no time, settle with your opponent while on your way to court with him, right? So we're on our way to court. Him and his brother are both on the way to court, but it's just a matter of time. Have we settled? Have they settled? Otherwise, your opponent may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to the guard who will throw you into prison. Okay. I thought that that was probably the most powerful part of this because this is where I think this man was. He was imprisoned. His heart was imprisoned and the guard was holding him prison there. Otherwise, your opponent may hand you over to the judge who will throw you over to the guard who will throw you into prison. If we're looking at this in the context of Gehenna, who's the guard? It's not an angel, right? Because the angel's not going to throw you into prison. The guard's going to throw you into prison. That means that you're not ready for heaven. You're going to be thrown into the prison of hell. The guard's going to be a demon. That's who's guarding hell. So, and he says, you know, if you're in a prison, isn't that kind of like, gosh, there's something in my heart that I'm not letting go of. And I don't know why, but I, I can't move forward. It's like, I'm playing a game without heart. Like there was something going on there. He was feeling this heavy burden in his heart. I think his heart was in prison. I, that's why, that's why I told him, I think your heart is, is in prison right now. I think you're hardening this heart. It's in prison. And it says, I warn you, you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. I think at this point, if we want to look at it from a spiritual perspective, you know, and since he said, it feels like there's somebody in my heart holding on to this, like there's somebody there, like a teammate almost holding on to this anger with me or for me or letting me know that I can hold on to it. And I told him, I think that we're going to have to go down the spiritual route and you're going to have to release that because you're in prison and you're not going to be released until you have paid every last penny. Well, let's you stick around after the break. We're going to find out what happened to this gentleman and how he was released from this prison that he was holding on to uh, because of what he was holding on to in his heart. More when we come back from the break. All right, folks, welcome back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Today we are talking about murder and possession and how does that go hand in hand? Well, you've been listening to the show, you know that I've been talking about a case where I helped a gentleman um, really get back in tune with life is what it came down to. Uh, here's the interesting part. You know, he, he was arguing with his brother. We talked about that a little bit. We talked about what was heavy on his heart. And he was just saying that he felt a burden on his heart. He felt something heavy there. He felt something that he couldn't understand why he couldn't move forward in life. And he didn't think right away that it was related to his argument with his brother. But, you know, it's one of those things where um, little by little, things can take over. We, if we harbor any kind of hate, regret, anger, we want to be right, and we can't just let it go. Well, these things can happen. So when we talked about this and I said, I think, I think this burden with your brother is, is a big issue. I think this argument with your brother is a big issue. And initially he was kind of like, it's just not that big a deal. I mean, I know that we're arguing, but it's not that big a deal. And I said, well, you know, we've tried medication. We've tried a lot of really good medication and nothing seems to touch it. There's nothing physically wrong with you, but why don't you just try this? And this is probably the hardest part of them all. I think you need to figure out a way to how to, how to forgive your brother. Um, I wasn't too happy about that at first and not in the sense that he was angry at me. It was kind of more along these lines where he said, yeah, you know, I think I, I, I know that eventually I'm going to have to cross that road, but I don't know that I'm ready to do that. And I said, well, you know, it's just something to consider. I said, we can keep trying medication. Nothing seems to have touched you thus far. We can keep trying it. No big deal. Um, but he wasn't sure that that's the way he wanted to go until I said, well, you know, that, that's up to you. That, that's your option. Um, 
you know, there's not much I can offer you other than the medication and counseling, but really as human beings, this is where we're something's burdening us. If I have, if there's something wrong with my leg or there's something wrong, let's say I get injured. Nobody else can do the physical therapy for me. Somebody can be there to help me out. I can have cheerleaders telling me, Hey, let's get you some physical therapy. And you know, we're going to stand here, but nobody can do the stretches for me. I I've got to do those stretches. I got to lift the weights. I've got to do the exercises to get my muscles stronger or whatever it is my body needs at the time. Um, and unless I do it, unless I do the heavy lifting or the movement or the stretching or whatnot, the muscle, the, the area that's traumatized, the area that needs therapy or something is going to stay that way. There's not going to be any change. And so for him, he decided, okay, I'm going to try this out. I'm going to do it. Um, and he wanted my advice on how to do it. And I said, well, you know, I don't know that I can give you advice because I'm not part of the argument, but the only thing I would say is the best advice I can give you, because sometimes when people want advice, they want answers. And I said, I don't know that I have answers. You know, the best advice I can give you is number one, do an examination of conscience, sit there and just kind of look at what do you feel is not going on right spiritually? Obviously we've been talking about your brother and we want to see what's going on with him, but what do you feel is not going on spiritually? in your life besides that? Is there anything else that needs improvement? Is there anything else that needs worked on? Is there anything else that's keeping you from um, having a good relationship with God? Uh, and he said, well, you know, he couldn't tell at first. He he uh, um, said he'd try it out. And, you know, he was Christian. So he said he'd try out, you know, just reviewing the Ten Commandments, reading the Bible a little bit, seeing what God would put in his heart and what, what would speak to him as far as these are the things that are troublesome in my life. And so he started doing that. And when he did, he said, okay, I think I know what I need to do. And I said, okay, well, what do you think you're going to do? And he said, I think the first thing I need to do is go apologize to my wife and my kids. And I said, well, what are you talking about? So I thought that, you know, it kind of surprised me a little bit. I didn't want to say anything, but you know, just wanted to get his opinion as to why this was. I thought initially, oh, he's avoiding having to talk to his brother, you know, because that's really where the, where the crux of it is. And he said, no, I think I need to start there for a couple of reasons. He said, you know, because I've been holding on to this anger, uh, I've been holding on to this, to this frustration, to this argument with my brother. He said, I, I feel like I've kind of been neglecting my kids or, or my wife and not in a way that they would necessarily recognize, but they don't get the best of me. They, I've been putting, I didn't realize that I was putting a lot of energy into not feeling this anger, into harboring this anger, into all the complexities of this anger, you know, trying to ignore it during the day, trying to make it not a big deal, trying to avoid talking to my brother. Um, and he said, that's, that's taken up a lot of energy that I didn't realize. And I haven't been there for my family the way I should or the way I'm supposed to. So I said, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty insightful. He said, I think I need to do that first. And then that'll help me practice talking to my brother. I said, okay. And so he went ahead and did that. And he said that his wife at first didn't, you know, his kids really didn't get it. And they were just like, oh, we don't know what you're talking about, but okay. His kids were younger. And then he uh, spoke to his wife and she said, oh, and she, he said, you know, I was glad that I spoke to her because actually she helped me out to see a few things that I wasn't recognizing that, uh, about myself. And she also helped me out with how to approach my brother and how to talk to my brother, you know? And so eventually he did, he did talk to his brother, came back. He said, you know, life wasn't perfect necessarily because nobody's life is, but he did feel as he was talking to his brother, the release from his heart of anything angry, of anything, of any anger, of anything burdensome 
of this, this sense that he couldn't move forward. He said, things are easier now is the way he described it. He said there was a release, like the door was open and things are easier is what he said. You know, kind of like something like the floodgates were open, like, like you open a door and all the, all the crud from the closet comes out and falls on the floor or something along those lines. You know, there's now open space. There's an emptiness there, a happy emptiness of all this bad stuff that just came out. And he said that it was important and it made him realize a few things. Um, he liked the reading after that. He said this reading from Matthew chapter five, verses 21 through 26, uh, because he said that he could understand now, not so much. He said, it, it kind of creeps up on you. He said, I didn't realize that what was happening to me inside as I was holding on to this burden, um, of this, of this murder, if you will, the way Christ describes it, not the way the world describes it, not the way the serpent described death in the book of Genesis, but a really spiritual, uh, uh, death, a, a very real murder, a very real death in terms of what's going on spiritually and in our hearts. But the part, the part he said that really spoke to him. And that was the part that, um, that I, that he and I went over was this part about being handed over to the guard who will throw you into prison. And he said at first, I went the, whenever he read that, he thought, well, gosh, why would you just hand somebody over to the guard? And he said, what he didn't realize was, um, you know, the judge didn't have a choice. He said, because I wasn't giving, I wasn't giving God a choice, but to hand me over to the guard and to be in a prison. Um, and he said, but now I feel released. I feel released because I apologize, not just to my brother, but to my family as well. And it really made me think about a few things when, when there's this kind of death, it affects so many people that we don't even realize. We think that, you know, us having an argument or, or holding something against somebody else is just between us. And, and that, you know, that's my burden to carry their burden to carry, or, you know, until we figure it out while my life goes on. But this really brought to light for me, the, the reality of the communion of saints and how we are truly connected. You know, he felt like he wasn't present to his family because he's holding on to this argument between himself and his brother. And now he's at the point where, you know, he's saying, gosh, I recognize now that this is affecting other people as well. It's like a death. You know, when we go to a funeral, we, it's not just like I go to somebody's funeral and I realize that it was just that person affecting my life. And I'm really sad that they've passed away. When I realize whenever there's a funeral, there's a lot of people who get touched by each one of us that we might not even recognize. I mean, we might not even realize um, and if people are affected that way by each of us, they're going to be affected in positive and negative ways. If there is a death, that death is not just going to affect my relationship with that person, but it's going to affect their relationship with everybody else. You know, if there's a death the way this is, if there's an argument, if there's a frustration, if there's an anger, we're going to be carrying heavy burdens that, yeah, we think that we're holding a grudge against somebody else and we're not going to forgive them. We're not going to uh, let it go because I'm in the right you know, and little do I know that I'm carrying that, but as I carry, I'm going to carry that with me, even as I'm interacting with other people, I'm not going to give other people the best of me. And that, that can be really challenging, um, in life. It can be really challenging for relationships. It can be really challenging in our wondering why we're not doing the best in our lives. Now, in this man's particular relationship with his brother, it came down to, they just needed to hash things out. Some things he said that they agreed to disagree on, but the fact that there was an open communication, that they were at peace, that they weren't going to push each other's buttons, that they were actually listening to each other and, and listening to, man, this is really important. This really hurt you. And I'm sorry about that. That was the key. He said, he said, it wasn't about me anymore. It was about, I could see where he was in pain. I could see where he was also hurting. And he said, I didn't even realize that. I thought he didn't care. I thought that he was just angry and didn't care. And, and the whole time, I mean, I cared but I didn't want to broach anything because I didn't want to get into that argument. He said there was something very beautiful about them being able to sit down and talk. He said, unfortunately, you know, there, there is a little bit of a rift still, uh, in the sense that 
even though they patched things up and things were together, said, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time for healing to take place because it's not like I can see him and pretend that all this time didn't happen. And that's where they were at. I've heard of other relationships where, yeah, they make up and it's like nothing happened. It's like, we're going to put all this behind us and we're going to start all over. He said, the hard part was a trust. The hard part now is trusting that they, they're going to be able to talk and not fall into the same trap, not, you know, trusting each other to, to respect each other. And I thought that was interesting too, because if we notice in the fall of man, one of the things that changed, um, when, when, uh, Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree and all of a sudden what happened to them, they ate it, their eyes, uh, their eyes, it says, then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. If you listen to theologians on this, when this happens after this rift, they both sin. there's, there's been a rift here. You know, he's blaming her. She's blaming the serpent. They're no longer in harmony. Why did they have to sew these fig leaves together and cover themselves? Because there was a lack of trust because now they could not trust each other. They couldn't trust that you're going to see me as I am and you're going to respect my dignity and vice versa. You know, they, they didn't feel that for each other. Now, now there's a vulnerability they don't want to share because I can't trust that you are going to see me with dignity. And that's kind of what happens with, with relationships. That's what happens with us when we have these long rifts, unless we can come to a full place where we say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to let all this go. And I'm just going to be vulnerable. That's, that's a very, very big challenge. When the communion of saints, when we get to heaven, it's going to be, they always talk about heaven being a great marriage between us and Christ. And it's going to be hundred percent vulnerability. There's not going to be a need for clothing, if you will, because we're going to be totally visible to each other, but in the light of Christ, when there's this argument, when there's a death, just like for Adam and Eve, they died spiritually. If I kill somebody spiritually in my life, all of a sudden there needs to be covering up. There needs to be distance. So what can we say, folks? What can we say about this? Was this man truly possessed? Yeah, in a way, you know, there, there's, we, we allow ourselves to be possessed by different things. You know, not the Hollywood possession, the Hollywood possession, the, the, what you see in shows and things like that, that's pretty extreme. <clears throat> and I think that the reality is that's the possession hell wants us to see. But the, the more important possession are the little ones that we allow ourselves to fall into every day when we decide, you know what? I think I know better. I think I'm going to hold on to this anger. I think I'm not going to forgive somebody um, because why would I let them have that? And we don't realize that we're really hurting ourselves. We're burdening ourselves. Once we get to the point where we say, hey, you know what? I'm going to examine my conscience. I'm going to see where I'm at. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. I'm going to put myself in a place where I want to be good with God. And if I'm holding something against my brother, well, I do not want to be in this prison. I do not want my heart to be in this prison. So the first thing I'm going to do is <clears throat> I'm going to cleanse myself and I'm going to get out there and I'm going to apologize and I'm going to make things right. Even if they don't want to make it right with me, but I'm going to unburden myself so that I can be free so that I can move forward and that I can say, Hey, I'm ready to make it into heaven. I'm not going to allow anything evil into my heart or be possessed in any way because of my own fault and because of my own sin. And that is really the true freedom for us in the light of Christ and the light of heaven. Until next week, this is Dr. Sandoval saying, keep it Catholic.